0: Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today, we're discussing mystery Four: Christy and the missing child.
1: Oh, man. I I think it's both funny and unhelpful that I'm going to do my one sentence summary first because it's just a commentary on the title and no substantive uh, (laughs) context of whatsoever. So I guess pretty par for the course. Okay, so my summary is an actual mystery happens in Stony Brook for once, and Bart is still hot. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of very good Bart
0: content in this book.
1: Yeah. And a little, a little kissing action. Yeah, a little kissing. Ooga. <laughs>
2: Eyes emoji. Well, I did, I forgot to do my one-season summary, so... <laughs> also classic. Also classic. I love, this is episode, like, 70 of the podcast. Yeah. well... The listener you know should know that I usually read the book before we do the podcast. And if it's on a work day, usually I have something annoying come up that prevents me from reading the book. So what that I... what? So in
1: conclusion, Anne doesn't read the book sometimes.
2: No, I always read the book. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> she does always read the book. She just might read it very, very late.
2: Yeah. But this goes back to my student days where I did everything yes. last minute. Um, What's that like? Okay. Yeah. Right. One sentence summary. I mean, I guess the thing that stood out to me is uh, there's this, but hang on. I got to consolidate into one sentence. Bleep, bloop, bloop, bleep. I feel like you're trying to make a haiku right now. <laughs> I don't know. Marianne has an issue with Jell O. I don't know. Great. Wow. <laughs> In the one
1: sentence summary, it's a mention. Okay, I we know. got a bet going.
0: Yeah. Before <laughs> yeah. you got on, I was
1: like, fifty bucks, Anne's gonna talk about Jell-O today. <laughs> I mean, what else is there to talk about? I know, I know. I'm okay. very confused about this B plot too. Can we talk about that at some point? Put it Yeah, on It makes simple. no
2: sense. I don't know why so, it's there. Uh,
0: my summary is in the best mystery yet, Anna Martin again explores missing children and Christy gets to be the hero.
2: They all make well, No be the wonder the you hero. like this book. Rude. Christy is literally <laughs> the only person who gets like I feel like is ever competent in any book. Okay, Claudia
0: in Babysitter's Island okay. Adventure. She
2: misspells some sign at the school assembly in this book really, really in a bad way. And I actually noted it and I was, it actually made me angry. She has
0: a neurodiversity that affects her spelling. She literally saves all their lives on the island and everybody knows it. Dawn curls up into a little ball and Jamie Newton would have died without Claudia.
2: Christi- oh, sorry, I just called me Christie.
1: Yeah, there's a lot not so far <laughs> under the surface happening here. I, I think we should talk about the book and save our friendships. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, we should actually back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Manna Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent
1: psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstoneybrook at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash And we have a thank you today to a new patron, Rachel Danjo. Woo-hoo. Thank you, Thank Rachel. you Rachel. Also, really loving that last name. Yeah, <laughs> it's very cool. Um, we also very exciting have some listener letters today. And you want to take the
2: first one? Sure. Okay. This is from. So this letter is from a listener, Duanna. Okay. Now I am Duanna. Pretend I am. I'm her speaking now. Okay.
1: Got mm-hmm. it. Got it. But I oh, won't do yeah. a
2: voice because that would be offensive, and I don't <laughs> actually know how she talks so great okay we're with you i had a major revelation just now in episode 65 jesse's wish you read a letter from a guy named philip who wonders why there was never a series of books like this for boys where there are many different types of guys and i thought wait there is but then i immediately realized why you guys wouldn't have known about them The bruno and butz Bruno and Boots books, also known as the McDonald Hall series, written by Gordon Corman, are a series of comedic novels about two best friends and boarding school roommates, Bruno and Boots, who get into ridiculous situations and scrapes, dragging their friends along for the ride. Bruno is definitely a Christie. Boots is 100% a Marianne, and they have a series of friends: Chris, the artist; Mark, the newspaper editor; Elmer, the all-around genius, basically Mallory if she was never self-conscious; Sydney, <laughs> oh, wow, the clumsy kid; <laughs> Kathy, the schemer from the girls' school across the street, etc., who all get roped into Bruno's crazy schemes against their better judgment.
0: Oh my God, this sounds amazing.
2: I know. (laughs) The books are super, super funny and honestly not sexist or tropey at all, particularly for the time they were written, give or take your feelings on single-sex education. They're unapologetically Canadian, though, which I assume is why they're not better known, even though Gordon Corman is a huge and prolific kids YA author to this day. The best slash worst part, he wrote most of them while he was in high school. What? (laughs) Any Canadian kid who liked reading or writing basically had Corman held over their head. He published his first book in grade seven. What were you doing with your life? Oh, God. <laughs> this is an excellent letter. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, this is far too long a to note about a series of books you aren't talking about yet. But as yeah. a massive fan of the books. It was a- an editorial <laughs> edition <laughs> from Anne. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Christie slash Claudia mix, which I think is rare, right? And your podcasts, as well as being a brutal chronic procrastinator, woot woot, I had to point it out. P.S. I don't work for Corman or anything. I'm just a nerd for book series in the '90s. Amazing. Okay, this maybe we
1: should really read helpful. one for a, a patron episode. Patron episode.
0: Oh yeah, that might. I, I these sound amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, i I want to meet Bruno in Boots. Yeah, I'm kind of into the um, the schemer from the girl school across the street. Kathy. Totally.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and we and we need to know if Kathy's a Logan as the only you know opposite gender person involved here.
1: Yeah, all right.
0: No, thank you, duana So helpful, and hopefully Philip is hearing this so he can go read these books and feel like his childhood wasn't for not.
1: Okay, I'm going to read a second letter. Awesome, from Georgina, who writes, "Hi Emily, Ann and Esme." I'm the person who posted recently on Instagram about a recent trip I took to visit a friend in Massachusetts. During the trip, I dragged my friend to look through Anna Martin's archived papers at Smith College. I had a ball, wanted to share it with people who would care. (laughs) You came to the right place. Yeah, totally. I only looked through three of the 52 boxes, as well as looking at the index of all 52, but gleaned a lot of cool tidbits just from that. Here are some notes I took. There are working titles for around 15 BSC books. My favorite is the working title of Get Well Soon, Mallory, which is Mallory and the Cooties. <laughs> uh, amazing. Jesse and the Dance School Phantom was originally going to be mystery number two. That, see, that makes sense because there is a mystery there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The BSC materials in the archives start with number 23, Dawn on the Coast. Each book from then on has a handwritten on legal pad one to two page outline from Anne. Wow. A longer typed chapter by chapter outline also by Anne, including notes to the ghostwriters, a full draft with line edits and a sketch and colorized original book cover. So the tentative conclusion here is that these author treatments start at 23 because that's when the ghostwriters became involved. In any case, the system shows that Anne and her staff were meticulously organized. Not surprising. Yeah. (laughs) Total Marianne move. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Some books include research correspondence. Awesome. So Stacey's Emergency has a few handwritten pages from what has to be a diabetes specialist giving specific notes on the treatment of diabetes in the book and then the edits are thoughtful and all taken up in the final manuscript. All in all, I was impressed by the research materials on different issues that everyone involved took into consideration in the creation of these books. Again, not surprising, but very cool. This this I, bullet you're going to like, Emily. Um, there's a whole bunch of material slash memos about the creation of the California Diaries spinoff series, which I found fascinating. It seems they took my so-called life as a template for the edgier world tone and characters of the spinoff. Wow. Okay. They had a hard time finding a name for the character of Ducky. He was originally Hoover and they went over a bunch of names before settling on Ducky. There's also a thoughtful editor's letter to Anne who I guess wrote the first book in the spinoff. Again, most of these edits are taken up in the final draft. Wow. Cool. Okay. Amazingly, there are handwritten notes of Anne's trip to Disneyland to research the first super special (laughs) fun notes about what rides and experiences and stuff that kids would like and what they would find dull. I would love to see those notes. I know. Um, two more bullet points. This cracked me up given how Mallory didn't get her own episode in the Netflix show. Apparently, in its original form, the third super special winter vacation was going to be from Mallory's perspective. She was gonna submit the finished book as a school project. Um, as we know, that got changed to a book Marianne put together for Logan and Aruba instead. I giggled at seeing all the Mallory scratched out and replaced with Marianne. Oh my god. Um I'll also giggled while reading Anne's handwritten outline of poor Mallory, in which Anne defines Divil for the first time. <laughs> Okay. And then the letter concludes with, I could have spent all weekend going through the other 49 boxes, but time was limited as it was, but it was, ahem, dibbly interesting. Found it so cool to see how the quote unquote sausage was made. So I highly recommend a trip. Feel free to use any of the tidbits on the podcast. We use them all. Thank you so much. (laughs) Best, uh, Georgina. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. I think we need to do,
0: I think that's maybe, uh, you know, Western mass needs to be where our first, uh, Retreat. retreat is as a podcast and then we can go to the smith archives what do you guys
1: think research trip
0: for yeah, vacation
1: fun <laughs> doesn't,
0: that, doesn't that sound great Anne? don't you want to go to school on our on our podcast retreat no and quit the podcast <laughs> i just quit <laughs> that is awesome though thank you so much that Regina. is very but cool both georgina and duana great letters love it yeah keep them coming everybody beautiful uh, excellent okay so what happens in this book Jake Kuhn of Crushers fame goes missing. Um, yes. Christy and Bart, they have a practice game against the Bashers early in the book that ends with a rainout. Christy and Bart are the last humans to see Jake as he walks home from the practice. With permission. With permission. His mom had his little sisters at the dentist. So she had said he could walk home on his own. And nonetheless, Christy feels guilty and. Upset we also this.
1: learn that they're newly um not only crushers but babysitting charges because Mrs. Kuhn went back to work after she and Mr. Kuhn got a divorce. Yes. And he's moved yes. to Texas. Yes.
0: Um, and then I don't remember are they are they fully divorced at this point or they're mid separation? It seems I'm like I'm pretty it's sure, all sure very they're new. fully divorced.
2: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Why yeah. do you think he moved to Texas? For a job? Work. Does Capitalism? he work in oil? Yeah. A hundred percent. Okay.
1: He's also, well, spoiler alert, skipping to the end. He's like on a work trip in rural Mexico. Yeah. He's definitely in oil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think so. And then the B plot confoundingly of this book is that Marianne is too distracted to really help that much in the search for Jake because she's failing home economics. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, why if any What's one of them that? is gonna fail homework? It's not gonna be Mary She's like, I love to cross stitch, but I can't for the life of me figure out a slip stitch and Mrs. So-and-so hates my cooking. It's like, what the fuck?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, like it that, serves no purpose at all, that plot. I don't
1: know, man. It's
2: weird. Except yeah, to advance makes, the jello commentary. I it don't makes know. me yeah. think like they they had to it was like spawn con. Like they just had to talk about Jello a lot. They talked about Jello oh so much, God. and it was suspect. I, you know what? I actually
1: agree with you on this one.
2: <laughs> it's really we got to look for that because um, it's like think that about,
1: note in the, yeah, in the archive. Right.
2: <laughs> they sometimes do call out things by brand name, obviously, but not that often. Thirty times, but not like, and not like to have like a, a, a like a D plot that doesn't add to the A plot at all. <laughs>
0: Well, and we've been joking on the last few episodes about sort of the thin thread between the B plot and the A plot, like the lesson that, you know, with like Jamie and his bike and Christy for president and stuff like that. But I, I don't think they even really try here, right? The only the only connection is that there's this cute awards night at SMS at the end of the book, and Marianne gets an award for most improved home ex student and Christy gets an award for helping find Jake. But like There's a
1: couple weird things where Christy's like oh, Marianne said something a little out of character I wouldn't have expected her to say, or like, Christy cries when she's worrying about Jake, and then, you know, she's like, oh, I wouldn't, this is something I expect from Marianne, but it's like so loose and tenuously connected, it doesn't even, I think you're right, there's no real attempt at, like, drawing a Um, parallel. Yeah, so you're saying that the
0: parallel is, like, when one is under stress, you may act more like your best friend than
1: like yourself? That is a generous read, I think, but <laughs> sure, yeah, 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 maybe that was the the hope
0: <sighs> well i't what did you like what did you guys think of this book just briefly before I go into my psychology stuff? How did you like it?
1: I liked it, I cried, mhm, yeah,
0: me too. What parts did you cry at
1: when they find him? yeah, yeah, and all the like he wants to make sure his mom knows that he's okay, yeah. he's like, yeah, it's really sweet, did you cry, Anne
2: no.
0: how did you like it overall
2: um I liked it I thought it was good it was well-written again I think Christy often gets the best books the some of the more well-written books I feel just because I think she's easier to write for you know
0: yeah. Well, I think starting from her coming from the perspective of Anna, Anna Martin's best friend, then she's got a really clear voice that Anne's using. And then it's probably easier for the ghostwriters to imitate too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's a very like a personality that is rooted in action too. So I think it's easier to right. Like I think one of the difficult parts with Marianne books is that so much of it is her internal life. Yeah. And that's so it's different than Christy, who has this like very active, um, you know, and we get some of Christy's internal life as well. Sure. And that's, what's, yeah. that's where she gets her nuance, right, is that she's this very specific person who acts in kind of predictable ways in a lot of situations. But she's always doing something. And then her books are good because we get to see the like flip side of that. Right. And I think that's and yeah. I don't know, kind of built into the the like archetype of her character a little bit.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's true. I I also thought this was just a really good BSC book. Like, I thought the Bart stuff was really fun and sweet. and Yeah, the the whole scene of them playing around in the rain and flirting before Jake goes missing, which I think was also really smart to do it before he goes missing, right? Because I think it would have felt weird or hard or Chrissy would have felt guilty if it was later in the book. And so it's like the last you know, happiness that, um, she truly has until Jake is found. And then even the babysitting chapters I thought were well done. I liked Stacy's popcorn picnic. Like there's, there's a lot of like sort of classic BSC stuff in this book. So I feel like Ellen Miles is really hitting her groove and that this, this book makes me look forward to the other mysteries more than I had been. I would agree. Yeah. Excellent. Well, what kinds of stuff jumped out to me? I we've we've talked about child abduction before um, at the be- at the top of the podcast. Anne was like, "Didn't we read this book?"
1: <laughs> I yeah, was like, no, Stranger you're Danger. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So, um, and Anna Martin also had her separate novel, Missing Since Mudney, that was also about child abduction. So we know this was really, really huge in the eighties and nineties, and continues to be a huge issue now. And you can see, um. On TikTok and Instagram, lots of um, people post like near miss abduction stories. You know, these moms talk about like, oh, I was in this parking lot and this person almost took my child, but he didn't. And it's like this very kind of fear mongering situation. So I think this is very much in the zeitgeist at the time. Um, And so I looked up a little bit on studies behind it. I found this great article from 2004, actually, um, by Kristen I think it's ZGOBA, it's Z-G-O-B-A, um, from the um, Criminal Justice Studies Journal about the way that child abduction as a moral panic contributes to legislation and how a lot of our legislation that supposedly stops kids from getting abducted is is made from this place of panic, not from um, really what the data is. And I think it's interesting with both this book and on the Impossible Three, Anna Martin portrays two much more likely scenarios than some terrible stranger stole Buddy or Jake. Right, so you know we know that the vast majority of kids that are abducted are abducted by a non-custodial parent or another relative, which is what happens with Buddy. Right, and they softened it in the TV series, but it was like more of a serious issue um, with Hamilton Barrett in the original book, and then in this situation with Jake where he goes to this abandoned house where he and Matt like to play because it's Stony Brook and the kids are all kind of slightly under supervised and he's just collecting screws and nails which I which I love is like a very like 10-year-old kid in a small well, they're town. Gonna they're going to build a treehouse. Yeah, cuz they're going to build their treehouse and then it's dark and it's rainy and he falls it's a construction site where he shouldn't be so he falls and he can't get out of the basement is much more likely than a random evil stranger picking him up off the streets in the rain. And so um, while it's still very scary and very worrisome and uh, and you still feel like the palpable relief of when Christian Bart and Matt and Haley and David Michael find Jake um, and they can hear him, you know, qu- after like 40 hours of being missing, you know, quietly yelling from the basement of this place that Matt knows them to bring to, um, does some debunking you know, on the part of this national narrative about stranger danger and watch out and you're going to get snatched. And it's not that kids never get snatched, obviously, but it's just a very tiny percentage of missing children who are truly snatched by strangers. So I I thought that was interesting. and, um, And this article is really about heightened media reporting of cases involving child abduction, and the way those contribute to a moral panic. And there's criteria by Good and Ben Yehuda from 1994 defining the five elements necessary to create a moral panic, which is concern, consensus, like are we talking about it as a culture together, hostility about the topic, disproportionality, and volatility. So do we have a response that's really, really big for a good reason? And of course, parents don't care how tiny a risk is, it's still terrifying to think of your child being abducted, right? So it's a perfect ground for volatility and disproportionality. Um, and that's where we get a lot of systems like the Amber Alert system in Megan's Law and in the 80s and 90s, kids on milk cartons that didn't necessarily find a really high proportion of people, um, didn't work very well, but are, you know, all of these laws are made because we're just sort of panicking as a society.
1: So I, I think thought that that, was- that moral panic, too, has a lot to do with why people are so into true crime and, like, serial killers and shit. hmm
0: Yeah. It's yeah. very—it's related, right? It's the next—it's, like, let's look for the boogeyman instead of noting that we're also— problematic like let's be able to define the other what makes poor
1: young women susceptible to being serially murdered oh (laughs) Uh, is
0: there a system that I'm upholding that might contribute to that nah Nah. it's just a really scary guy that eats people yeah yeah
1: but he's also hot so interesting
0: yeah (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Are we talking about children's
2: books?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did think um, two things were done really well psychologically in this book too, that it felt more like an Anna Martin book to me. So again, I was very impressed with Ellen Miles. We have the standard um, kind of Mr. Rogers conversation that we see in a lot of things in uh, chapter 12 on page 101, where Watson and Liz are talking to all the kids about their fears. And I think this was also a big, Problem with the milk carton campaign, right? Is that like I mean, Anne, you and I have talked about this. We remember like seeing kids' faces on milk cartons at the breakfast table and being
1: scared. What was that movie? Snatched. There was wasn't there a movie that was like called Face on a Milk Carton? That was with I think like Jodie Foster or something, where she gets found like ten years later. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, that's totally a movie I would not see. But, well, I think I was too young for the actual faces on the milk carton. Yeah, so that was like the later next era, like dramatization of what had come prior.
0: <laughs> but do you remember being spooked about that, Anne? Like, I definitely remember being like worried by it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think I was ever, I was never scared of getting abducted or kidnapped, but I definitely just remember like, well, as you were describing the milk carton thing, I was thinking how it's not funny, but how the res, like, the resolution was so poor yeah, of the photo. On the photo, yeah. I don't think I would have probably even recognized, recognized. Yeah. the right. child if I saw that right. it's like a black and white
0: dot matrix isolated. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. That's true. Oh man,
2: it's like yeah. funny, not
0: funny. Yeah, yeah it's, it's funny, funny, not funny, funny. not funny. Just sure. thinking
2: how far we've come with with like images and print and everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they did this really nice conversation where they start out by talking about Christy's dad and that they don't really know where he is, but he's probably in Petaluma, which I thought was like a random (laughs) reference. (laughs) Um, And David Michael says, do you think he might kidnap me just so he could see what I'm like now? And then Christy prefaces this with, my mom knows that you should always respect children's fears, so she didn't laugh. And then they go into this very good conversation with David Michael and Andrew and Karen about what to do and like, how to make a fuss if somebody comes near you that you don't know and that they'll always know if someone else is supposed to pick them up. And it was just like a nice, I, it didn't feel too preachy to me. It just felt like a good conversation about how you should handle potential
1: yeah. abduction as a well, child. Right. And like not all strangers are bad. Mm-hmm. Right. It was kind of, I think, I mean, unfortunately, it's like like a police officer yeah, or something, of something are the only two examples, but I think that's an important lesson, right? That yeah. like not all just because you don't know someone doesn't mean right. They're a serial abductor. Right. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and that to, to be to be fair, they're talking to a bunch of white kids in suburban Connecticut, so they probably can trust police officers to right. keep them safe in this true. situation. <laughs> um true, true. And then crossing guards is the other example they give. But I think that the the implication was that they would know like teachers and things like that. Um, and another thing that they emphasize is like, you don't need to be polite. Like you can be mean and shout mean things if there's somebody that you don't know and it's and it's scary. And so that, I think that idea we've expanded a lot as a culture in terms of also helping kids respect their own bodily autonomy. I think there were a lot more, me- not I think, there were a lot more messages um, certainly when Ann and I were young, but I think even when you were young, Emily, of like, well, give, give this random old relative. You don't really know a hug. And like, you know, it's, you know, you should be accepting various forms of touch that are not necessarily sexual, but that are probably that you don't want as a child from different people. Um, and that message has really changed, especially in more progressive spaces about like teaching even very young kids, like it's your body and you get to decide if you, you know, and saying like, would you like to give, you know great aunt Esther a hug,
1: great, go ahead. Or, you well, know, right. And importantly, that five. discussion yeah. is about your relatives, not about yeah. strangers because right. again, exactly. Yeah. exactly, I always tell my mom, cause she's she's like never opens the door for people she doesn't know. And I'm like, yeah. mom, you know, you're far likely to get murdered by your husband than you are by right. a stranger at the door. <laughs> she does not like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Poor Ralph.
1: <laughs> Just statistically speaking. <laughs> it's true. You're not
0: wrong. You're not wrong. And then the other thing that I already mentioned that I really liked was Christy and Christy and Bart's shared guilt that they were the last ones to see Jake before he disappeared Um, and how real that is and I think the trauma bond that culminates in
1: a kissing situation that's true (laughs)
0: trauma's hot trauma's hot (laughs) but it was very sweet and you could see her like you know her logic and Mrs. Kuhn was very much like Christy this is not your fault like you did exactly what you were supposed to do like and Christy you know because she's Christy admitting to Mrs. Kuhn that she felt guilty to get that, that's in DBT, that skill is check the facts. Like, is this something that I actually did wrong versus not? And she knows intellectually that it's not, but she can't help feeling that way. Right. And then, and so I thought that was very sweetly rendered as well.
1: So. Awesome. Good book. A plus. got yeah, some, I liked it. Yeah. You got some nuggets for us, Emily? I do. I mean, yeah, I, I put it, I was like, damn, American stranger danger alert. But I think you're right that that the book goes a long way toward trying to kind of undermine that fear, right? It's palpable among the kids, but like even Mrs. Kuhn, her first kind of like conspiracy yeah. theory, like wild thing is like my husband, the only explanation is that my ex-husband must have flown here from Texas and taken my son to Europe because I told him he couldn't go. Yeah, I was like, even that, like I think is important to have as a thread right there yeah and so I thought um that it was an interesting way to kind of tap into that um that what I what I personally perceive to be a very American and uniquely American kind of cultural obsession um I have a bunch of other little kind of like gendery things. And I'm curious whether, uh, something from very early on major social justice list, but we could talk about it. So there's like some fun, like, again, the home ec stuff is kind of funny, right? It's like, why does why Marianne can't sew, but Stacy can do a slip stitch. And it's like very lightly kind of, kind of gendered stuff. But I think it's interesting that like the threat of failing home ec is weighing on, on Marianne mm-hmm. so much. Um, there's also this w- weird recurring thread, which I get is laying the groundwork for why we find Jake Kuhn for having fallen down at the construction site specifically. But several times Christy remarks on, how haven't you ever noticed how obsessed boys are with like construction yeah. sites and heavy machinery? And I don't know the name of that forklift or whatever. And wow, Bart, Bart and David Michael both know all these tools. And I was like, okay, we get it. Like boys like construction sites, but like I understand how it's a um why it's setting up you know what hap- what ultimately happens as as far as a plot point but it really lays thick the the gender dimension of of that like i think you could have easily been like kids are really interested in how things are built and like you know kids play at in places that are unsafe and it didn't need to be so so deeply gendered well, in that not sense. not only that,
2: it's like all the girls
1: were playing with Barbies. In the yeah, school. all the little girls. and But I think that there's something really interesting too that that is juxtaposed with several times. Christy remarks on the fact that Bart lets her do something that another boy would want to do themselves. So there's a kind of weird tension in this book where on the one hand, Christy's like, Oh, Bart's cool because he doesn't insist on like treating me like a girl who can't do stuff. But at the same time, like the whole other, uh, like all the latent background descriptions of all the thing, things kids are doing are shot through with like really, really deeply gendered stereotypes. So I thought that was an interesting tension in this
2: book. Is it because Christy is horny?
1: Christy, (laughs) Christy got her period. Christy got her period, and that's the only explanation. (laughs) Uh, Mm, yeah, Yeah, but like Margot, like she just sort of in passing remarks that oh yeah, Mal has said Margot's really obsessed with weddings lately. She's in in a phase, and then like the girls, the Pike girls are playing with their Barbies, and I don't know. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah,
0: no, there is a lot of Barbie, a lot of Barbie talk in this book too. But I think that. That's pretty common in, I mean, I feel like Anna Martin does sort of interrogate gender in a lot of places, but I think in terms of like little kid play. She's not a, at all, really. She doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And Barbie's come up a lot. Not, I mean, this is the most we've seen them recently, but it's very much just like a, that's a thing that. But I got
1: to say it was a little surprising to have Christy in one breath say, "Haven't you ever noticed all boys are so interested in construction and like Bart is so cool. He he volunteers to stay behind with the kids while I go look, which is not something a typical boy would do." So I'm like, "Which is it? Are all boys the same or are all boy are, you know, like yeah. There's it's a slippage that, there, I think. It's just that Bart is so special. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's not like other boys. But also, you
0: guys, I mean, this is probably the gendered thing across the books that I least disagree with. Like, do you know any cisgender women who are interested in construction sites or were as like I don't think I've ever met any okay I don't and I and I have noticed boys and men being weirdly obsessed like it's definitely a thing that we see now of course I can't undo the threads and I don't know how much of that is just our cultural indoctrination but it's definitely most of it (laughs) yeah well I don't know it feels less like it though when you see it happen at like a super progressive preschool in Berkeley where all of the kids are trying to wear gender-neutral clothing, and, but still, like, the digger is the thing that the seven boys all fight over and none of the girls seem interested in.
1: <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I just think that happened yeah. so much earlier than that. Yeah. Right? No, that, I, like, I agree. But it just yeah. is,
0: is like I can think of a lot, I, I know a lot of girls that didn't like Barbies. I don't know a lot of little yeah. boys that didn't were never interested in construction. That's all I'm saying. Like it yeah. feels more true than within My this brother? context. It feels more true.
1: <laughs> but yeah. I think okay. too, construction sites as like sites that make gender are really culturally relevant and pervasive, sure. right? That Thanks. like the construction site is the place you don't walk by as a woman because it's filled with lecherous men who are going to whistle at you and give you unwanted attention, right? Like the construction right. site is like, the paradigm where like masculinity and femininity diverge. And I think that you get that even pre-preschool age when you're picking yeah. up what toy to play with. And I, I don't yeah. know, I think, I think well, it's...
0: And that, that's actually a really great point in terms of catcalling and things like that, because even if you were a woman who happened to be interested in construction, you would immediately get punished for standing there trying to watch the construction happen.
1: Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Yeah. I just thought that was some interesting kind of light, light gender stuff there. Um, Okay. So, the one thing, uh, my one other little nugget that I'll I'll, um, ask you about before I hopefully, before hopefully we talk about Jell O or something um, more exciting is that Christy, okay, we've talked a lot about like good parents and bad parents and good kids and bad kids. And she does an interesting thing when she's talking about the coons' divorce, where she describes them as having a civilized divorce which is just like such a cringy word to me, right? It's like the word in Western thought that like authorizes colonialism and like slavery and like all of these other horrific cultural practices and to like see it affixed to like an example of good parents who center their kids in a divorce as opposed to some like bad parents who, you know, use their kids as pawns in their fights. Or like, I think there is a, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying Ellen Miles is like committed to this racial paradigm or whatever, but there is definitely a dimension of civilized versus not uncivilized that is racialized in Western kind of history and thought and practice. And so there is a kind of subtext that's like good civilized white parents as opposed to, like, poor, you know, non-white parents who do a bad job at, like, centering their children when they're going through messy divorce proceedings or something like that. And it's really subtle. It's just one word. But, like, if you... I think to have that, if you would encounter that descriptor as a way of differentiating like a good divorce from a bad divorce today, it would be like super problematic and laden with like a lot of bad connotations about like who, which people are poor, which people are bad at doing things that we, you know, value as a society. So I was, um, struck at, you know, I'm sure that reading it in the nineties, you know, there would be far few readers who would have picked up on that but right now it, it struck me as very like cringy
0: it really jumped out at yeah me. that's really interesting well isn't it in the i mean i definitely don't think it was intended that way at the time i think now we would for sure yeah what christy's trying to communicate we would probably say like amicable right yes. um or yeah. collaborative something like that yeah but mostly she's trying to differentiate them from her own father right, right. and from the fact that he just skipped out and you know wasn't involved in their lives
1: right but um, you wouldn't call that yeah. uncivilized no <laughs> or like right in western thought civilized is paired yeah. with savage right, right. like that's totally. the dichotomy in the history of western thought and so like Mr. civilized
0: savage right yeah. so civilized
1: as a as a descriptor has a long tradition in western thought yeah. of being used that way as delineating kind of like the boundary of the human right like um, and so I think it's interesting to see a, a substitute in here for like amicable or yeah. <laughs> Amicable, um, and like definitely not okay to use any anymore. Yeah, <laughs> for, for sure. Totally. totally. That's my yes. only other little nugget.
2: What do you think of Gwyneth Paltrow's term for her divorce? Oh, conscious uncoupling. Yes. Yeah. Savage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Uncivilized. <laughs>
2: Fantastic!
0: <laughs> you said there was a a thing that you wanted to know if I caught for social justice. My only social justice thing, I think I did not because I just have Indian from Indian in the cupboard written down.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That I was wondering if if if, if civilized would trigger yeah, anything for you. No, yeah. I missed it. <laughs> well, yeah. good. It was an Emily nugget then. Yes, perfect.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. and so before we get into Jello, uh-huh. but it isn't. I only have a few nuggets about Jello that actually pertain to to the book, I feel. Oh. But I think one thing that was funny is when Matt is telling everyone, the search party, how, oh, like he might be, he takes a shortcut and he might go through this drainage pipe, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, uh, Christy says, I kind of doubted that Jake was lost in a network of underground tunnels. And I was like, okay, they're describing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Which he has his birthday party is a Ninja Turtle, <laughs> right? Theme. So he's I was like, oh, so like, what wouldn't he want to do that? Yeah, I know. So I was just like, oh, maybe they will find him there because yeah. obviously, <laughs> I had the same thought. He wants to be Donatello, getting trained trained by a Splinter or whatever. Yeah, which by the way also
0: fits with his interest in building the treehouse that he's a Donatello if we're just mm, gonna, you know, because Donatello true. does machines.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting machines. how... <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's the line from the the theme song.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Leonardo
0: leads Donatello does machines. Yeah. It's so funny.
2: <laughs> it's like teenage mutant ninja turtles are pretty much the only toy that they consistently talk about for a, a while now, which... Yeah, other than Barbies. Other than Barbies, yeah. which goes to prove how popular they were.
0: Yeah. Well, this time. But, and they also Anna Martin gave up on the Wandering Frog people, and they just went straight right. to actually talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I would like to ask her that question if we ever have <laughs> the opportunity. That will yeah. be my one question that I ask her.
1: <laughs> I hope just that's not true, since you're wandering the Wandering Frog Indian people? You, question you, mark yeah. or like, <laughs> what's the question? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. What's the oh, my question? My question it would be why sometimes she tried to substitute names for things already exist existing things like wandering, like, was it a legal thing or was it just because he didn't want to like name drop like a name brand, um, make cause he wanted the universe to be more in timeless or whatever. Anyway. So <clears throat> going on to Jell-O, first <laughs> of all, Jell-O has a very, uh, long history and it's very interesting if anybody would want to read more about it you should um but this this more like the history
1: of smart food
2: (laughs) um it's maybe it's a tie (laughs) (laughs) okay uh but i wanted to talk about how jello was so crazily popular and especially like in like especially like in the 50s right so it kind of has an association with like, uh, you know, stay-at-home mom, housewife. Like home, economics, th- home economics. Home economics, how will. like they choose Jell-O as the one, the focus of Marianne's kind of like, one of her big issues is like making Jell-O, right? So I was just like, oh, it's like, I, I'm i guessing Ellen, Ellen Miles lived through probably eating Jell-O as a kid a lot. Maybe her mom made her Jell-O a lot. Like Jell-O was a really big thing in my family. Like we had Jell-O like for every holiday, my aunt would make a Jell-O dessert. And it was always one of the three same things. So I feel like Jell O played a very important part in my in my childhood as like association of like jell is a festive thing, Jell-O is something to be celebrated, which is what Jell O was trying to market really.
0: Okay. So wait, is it Auntie Sachi or Auntie Lucy? Auntie Lucy. Okay. And what were the three
2: options? Um she made like a chocolate pudding thing. With this like graham, it was like a graham cracker nutted crust with like a layer of chocolate pudding uh, with like whipped cream and then another layer of chocolate pudding and then like kind of like a nutty, a nutty topping. It, it was good. Um, and she also made like rainbow jello. Um, and she also made this kind of like jello that had a, a like a like a cheesecake like bottom. With like a Jello on top, yeah. So those are the three things, and they're all very good. Um, but I want to talk about jigglers because in the book, Marianne thinks she invents jigglers, yeah, only to realize later that it's actually a thing.
0: Well, and that's why I your your um, idea that this is sponsored content hits home with me because this is I remember the jigglers push on television. Mm-hmm around this time like right. how many ads there were to right. tell people to make jello jigglers and how it was on every box right. and it wasn't so
2: basically like jello was hugely popular from like the 20s to like through the 50s and in throughout the 60s jello sales started to decline um so whereas before jello dishes were kind of part of an everyday family meal like it was just it was like like all those were jello molds and stuff like that it became more of like an occasion food like how i experienced it as a kid and jello kind of blamed this um blamed declining sales and the fact that women were working more uh classic and like family sizes were decreasing and family life was more fast-paced um and jello is really easy to make (laughs) I don't know. So, but not when you make some weird, complicated, like meat, mint, Jello, gross dinner thing. Or like I, I feel like less thought is being put into your meals, right? So, in 1986, there was a market study that concluded that mothers with young children rarely purchase Jello. This is in 1986. Ha! So they're well, like we assholes to, yeah they're like we, we got to turn this jello ship around so that's really funny yeah, i feel like so, my mom purchased
0: jello a lot but that's because she raised her first set of children in the 1960s the early right. 60s yeah
2: um so the marketing team so you know back in like the 1920s and 30s and 40s they there were all these jello recipe books that were published and one of the recipes was actually for jigglers it wasn't called jiggler's at the time, but they, part of their market research was like, let's see what's already been done, what could work now. So they found this recipe for jigglers, which is basically like condensed concentrated jello to make it harder. So you could cut things out of them. So they just, they were like Jigglers. That's a great name. We're going to call this Jigglers Now we're going to market it as a finger food. So they did a massive marketing campaign on it starring a, Canceled comic we cannot we do we do not talk about <laughs> anymore. But the campaign was a huge success and they started making that gel of money again and you know, we kind of know what happened after that. Jello not so popular now, but in the 80s through the mid 90s, I feel like it was very popular.
0: Well, because they did the huge Jigglers campaign, but then mm-hmm. that's also when they started selling it in individual cups in the fridge section, right. too. So you could just toss it into a lunchbox.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that's the other. Yeah.
1: Guess what? The majority of the Jello I have consumed in my life has been in the form of shots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost exclusively as an adult in the form of Jello shots with vodka. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a good idea
2: yeah great for a um, bachelorette party <laughs> there is if anyone's interested you can also look up the history of jello shots which i am not going to get into mm-hmm. but not
0: so a, relevant to marianne yeah. in this book. but there
2: yeah. are some interesting things about it if, if is it about it's about when to go it's about who like invented it oh interesting yeah i'll look it up um teaser, teaser. so that was just i thought the juggler thing was interesting because it's so tied to domesticity and Jell-O is so tied to it, um, so it, it makes a lot of sense that it is the food focus of Marianne's home at class. I think
1: we've really uncovered a conspiracy here. This is definitely Spawncon. This book—that's the only explanation for the plot. I really think it B could plot.
2: be, to be honest. <laughs> like it could have been where Jello came to um, Scholastic, Scholastic, who yeah. you know, who is a kids' publishing right house. So like you know, they're talking to the kids. And we're like, hey, like, we'll give you this much money if you mention Jell-O in X amount of books this year. You know, wow. so I think I don't know that we should ask Anne that question for sure.
1: I, I want, she might have had to sign like a an NDA. An NDA. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> and then a couple just like fun tidbits I thought were interesting is that in 1992... A woman named Yvette Bassa won the second ever i g Nobel Prize in Chemistry for inventing blue jello. Oh. so I guess the i g Nobel Prize is just um it's like an it's like a honorary achievement in science that just like makes people happy, kind of. so Blue Jello was one of them and also going back to the tie between jello and domesticity jello is very popular among mormons huh so that's a whole nother thing that's kind of interesting if if people want to read about it but um it's called the mormon region uh, in utah is nicknamed the jello belt like it's so popular <laughs> there i'm reading under the banner of heaven right now it's oh, oh that this book is, a is weird so good yeah um and in it's 2001, Jello was recognized as a favorite snack food of Utah by the Utah Senate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's hilarious.
1: Senate. So, Wait, was well, there remember, can, okay. was there
2: candy in this book other than Jello?
1: Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, the Jello is the only snack that I
2: remember. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think they they eat Doritos. Oh yeah. Okay. At, uh, at one of their meetings, but that was that was it. That's well, so and Stacey wild. has the popcorn picnic with uh, well, Laurel and Patsy Coon. Yeah, well, but that's not a Claudia.
0: No, no, no. But it's cute. I liked it. Nah. I thought it was like classic BSC thing. As were um, you going to say something you remembered about Jello? Oh, Utah? I was. I was going to So before we were lucky enough to have a Target in Sacramento, we used to have a, a Gemco. Which is a company that I think isn't around. Did you ever get the J- the Jello at Gemco, Anne? Do you remember
2: it? I don't think so. Oh, they would maybe
0: shop, I did. that like counter, and they would sell Jello that was in cubes. So it was like, but it wasn't as hard as like when you made Jiggler's yourself. So I think it was in between. So it was like they would cut cubes of Jello out of a pan and then put like a dollop of, I think it was probably Cool Whip, not actually whipped cream, on top. It was so good. I, I probably, would That sounds them. pretty
2: good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Um, <laughs> Okay, so only Doritos for Claudia's candy. What about tallies as? There are a lot of tallies in this book. And I, think I thought that so too.
0: Yeah, we're seeing a plant. I think we're seeing that ghostwriters are putting more of them in. Um, I think Anne is sort of fading on some of them. And then, because she doesn't need to, I don't know, doesn't maybe need to prop the babysitters up in a tropey way as much. So there's one exotic, one almond shape, one sophisticated, two sensitive, two shy, one individual and one health food. Which is that definitely the like most scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the oh, last yeah. couple books had like a shy and a sophisticated each, basically. Like very I mean, I'm flipping backwards in my little organized notebook. I, and I am think- really
2: surprised they keep on describing Claudia as exotic.
1: I know. I you not think into the nineties it would be like no. Huh? no, no. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Eighty-six, I get it, no problem. But I mean, not no problem, but you know what I mean. Not a surprise. Yeah. But it's like we're almost done with ninety-two here. It's yeah. a little surprising. Yeah, agreed. Agreed.
1: And then not your awesome. social social justice tally was indeed it was in, the just in the cupboard, which isn't really fair. I mean, they're naming a book, but
0: yeah. Um, yeah, that's the only one that I saw. I missed the civilized, like you noted.
2: Okay. So weirdest lines. I feel like there were a lot of
1: good ones in this book, but I was reading on my Kindle, so I forgot to jot them down. But I feel like the kids had a lot of funny things going on. Well, I guess there were a lot of scared things. Like, I maybe I'm being unfair because I'm like, some of their fears were silly. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I only wrote down one, um, I and I think I sort of forgot as I was reading because I was like really into the book. Stressed, yeah. Like, <laughs> into and, the, the plot, yeah. Yeah, so um, the only one I wrote down was um, what, pete black designs um during the home ec class which is his ajl which stands for automatic jello launcher oh my <laughs> and apparently has a very futuristic drawing that goes along with it
1: okay well i will say that is a very appropriate title for this spawn con theory we're spinning yeah. here <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I, I have that down and i also have um front and loaders Oh, cause that, yeah. yeah, that's the, um, construction, the that was construction a thing. thing. Yeah. Those, those are both have, good. Yeah. But I also just have jello, jello, jello. <laughs> okay. Wait, I think that gets my vote. <laughs> cause I was like, wow, variant's really like in that one entry she has. Yeah. She says jello, jello like jello. 50 times. <laughs> like that was
0: ridiculous. Love it. Love it, yeah. That's I, yeah. I think Jello, Jello, Jello is, is pretty good. Beautiful, excellent. What should we pizza toast to?
1: Uh, I don't know. I feel like that's hard. I mean,
0: Bart, Christy's first kiss. Yeah. Uh, it is Christy's first kiss, right? Yeah. Right there in front of everyone. That's night. Yeah. Bart is really cute in this thing. He's I, I've man.
1: been saying this for years.
0: <laughs> I know, but he like keeps being... And I, you know, you pointed out the same thing I wrote down, like at the, when they're finding Jake, Bart says, I'll stay out here. You go in and explore the house and how Christy notices that and is like grateful for it. I just think yeah. he's like... And she decides not to dress up for the awards night, and he's like, "Oh, you look great!" Like in her, she left her hair
1: down instead of. I think we've already done several pizza toasts to Bart, though. I know, but we could we could do it to her first kiss, though. I think that that's yeah. A, yeah. a new spin on the on the old. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, pizza toast to Christy's first kiss. To, to
2: Christy's, Christy's first kiss, kiss.
1: with Bart. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned.
0: Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Salar Khan. You can find her work and hire her at propodcastediting.net. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kit. Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. You can also join us on Patreon for bonus content at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stonybrook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.